Amen. Jesus, we worship you this morning, uh, and we do worship you, Lord, because you are risen, seated at the Father's right hand with all authority. We thank you that you are alive, that you are interceding for us, that you are still building your church. Um, and Lord, we just stand before you right now in these moments. Uh, we pray with attentive hearts to what you would say to us by your word and by your spirit this morning. Please speak to us. Please speak to us. It's, we long to hear your voice from your word and your spirit mingled together. Uh, making things new in our hearts. So please do that today, and we'll thank you for it. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys can have a seat. Uh, as I said in the opening, I want to just take a moment and just introduce uh, someone who's quickly becoming a, a, a good friend, a close friend, Cam Wolford. Um, Cam leads a ministry called Servant Leaders International. Um, he is a missionary that uh, former Cornerstone Community Church, now Mercy Hill West, had supported, and we picked up their missionaries a little over a year ago uh, when we kind of grafted them in out there. Um, and a few months ago, we had an opportunity to meet Cam. He was in the area, and he spent some time uh, with myself and the other elders and Mark and just getting to know him a little bit. And it became evident to me real quickly that we just kind of use a lot of the same language and, and think about church and the gospel and Jesus and the mission um, in, the, in the same way. And so we actually asked him, uh, to come up, and he's actually spent this, the past couple of days with us. He spent uh, Friday with myself and the interns, and we recorded a couple of podcasts on Friday afternoon, and then yesterday um, spent the day at the Hub with myself and the other elders and Mark, and, uh, and just talking through some things, and, and it's been very helpful in just kind of being an outside voice and some outside eyes in helping us to, to think through some things for the next season. But Cam, if you want to come up, and uh, I'll just uh, just turn it over to you. But please uh, just welcome him as he comes, if you will. Thanks, brother. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Good morning. Well, it's, uh, it's definitely a pleasure to be here. Every time I come back into this area, I just am impressed by the beauty of Ohio. My experience of Ohio for many years was between Toledo and Youngstown, and I thought it was pretty ugly. So when uh, I had the opportunity to come down here uh, just to see that, okay, God did move his fingers a little more through the land here and make uh, the Shire. And so I've just been very impressed. Every time we come back, feel just at home and at peace. So thank you so much for the hospitality. Uh, I've had the opportunity to get to know some of you. Uh, the Troyers have been uh, very hospitable, putting us up, taking us to dinner, spending time. I brought my daughter with me and Esther spent some time with her. We're just very thankful that Wherever you go in the world, uh, the gospel connects us in a way that goes far beyond blood. Uh, gives, gives us opportunities to get to know each other quickly. You start off really quick. You don't have to spend a whole lot of time uh, trying to figure things out because you speak the same language, you have the same heart, uh, you're unified by the same spirit. So we're very thankful for that. Uh, my family and I have been involved in church planting for, seems like forever. Um, I'm an old guy. Uh, we started church planting uh, in early 90s in southwest Michigan with uh, Hispanics that had migrated for work uh, to there. We went from there and we uh, dedicated ourselves to church planting in South America. We were able to plant churches, help plant churches in southern, the southern Andes of Ecuador. We then were involved in planting churches in Costa Rica in the southern uh, mountains of Costa Rica. I now currently leave a, lead a team 
that is dedicated to helping churches to reproduce. Uh, the church, some of the churches that we were involved in, in planting now have uh, gone out and are beginning to plant, and that's what it's all about. The, the power of the church is the extension of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. But there are so many churches that don't see that, don't feel that, don't know that, and they're stuck, and they're stagnant. Our team uh, is cons- consists of four different countries. We're a multicultural team. We have team members in Europe, here in the United States, in Central America, and in South America. And so as I lead the team, we're very non-traditional. We're not, uh, we don't have brick and mortar, and we're trying to keep it that way. We're trying to stay very lean and mean to be able to move around and, and cross-pollinate and cross borders as long as God permits us to do so. So if you're, if you're interested in finding more about that, you partner with us. Thank you for adopting us. Uh, we, we are very privileged for that to have happened. Uh, and we ask that you, you go to servantleaders.net to find some more information and be praying for us. So I grew up in, in New England, uh, a different culture than, than many of you have grown up in. My grandmother immigrated from Italy during World War II, and she brought with her uh, a religion that my dad, who is the oldest of nine children, uh, was very strong in. In my parents' journey, my mom was agnostic, grew up in Vermont, married my dad, had to convert to his religion to marry her. She became religious, but in their mid-30s, they had a transformation. My mom first was born again, and then my dad soon after was born again. That was my first experience with uh, the disrupting power of the gospel. I'd never heard of this before. I'd never observed this before. And to see your parents all of a sudden go through something that seemed very, very strange. My dad was in his late 30s. He had started multiple businesses. And his life was on a trajectory to to live out the American dream, to, to experience all he could, to get all he could and provide for his family all that he could. And all of a sudden, this gospel thing came in and changed and disrupted everything. My dad, at somewhere around 38 years old, felt there was something pulling on his life that was distinctly different than what he had been doing, and it disrupted his path. And as a teenager, and I observed this, I saw it as destructive. I didn't know how to give words to it. I didn't know how to wrap my brain around it, but when my dad said, we're packing up and we're moving, because I feel propelled to give my life to the gospel. He might as well have been speaking French. And I looked at him and I thought, this is the the worst news I've ever heard. The worst news I've ever heard. But my dad began to open up my eyes to a concept that took me many years to understand. Many years. My parents could give a testimony of the power of the gospel to come in and give them hope today to restore their marriage to make them feel different, I could understand that. But the gospel was so much more than that. It came in and not only just transformed their idea of how they did the normal things they were doing, but it disrupted and changed their direction. That I did not understand. They used terminology like born again, foreign language, with little meaning, until he packed me into a truck and moved me to a place I'd never been before, and then born again had a different meaning. 
If I was to sit with many of you this morning and ask you what you do, you would probably rattle off what you do for a living. We'd have a conversation and many of you are wrapped up in in your occupation. Your identity is connected to that. What you do brings you value. It puts bread on the table and clothes on your backs and provides for your families. If I was to quickly move into a different topic and say, okay, tell me what your vocation is, your eyes might cross. I don't understand that language. I clarify and say, what has the gospel equipped you to be and to do in the kingdom of God? You might fumble around a little bit and think, uh, again, language I don't really use. I'm not sure I understand that. Turn with me to the book of Acts. We're going to start there this morning. You see, what the reformers faced in the 1500s and this revival that took place out of a very religious system began to touch on the fact that as men and women who have been impacted by the message of the cross, we have the life of Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, walking amongst man in perfection, offering himself up as a sacrifice and payment for our sins, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, going to the cross, dying, shedding his blood, and being buried and then rising again. That's the gospel. The gospel then calls each one of us to something that we share together. It does not matter if you are in Guatemala or you're in Ecuador or you're in China or you are here in Ohio. Each one of us share a general calling. That calling is that we would be sanctified or we would be transformed into the image, into the likeness of Jesus. Paul said it in Galatians clearly, I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live but Christ lives in me. That's a call that each of us share. That's your general vocation. But we have a specific call. Something that is very distinct and specific to each one of us. And this has taken me a long time to wrap my brain around. For many years I think I was a a functioning deist. Someone who, I acknowledge God and his power to save, but he seems very, very distant. Is he really interested in my life? Is he really at work specifically moving in me? Am I that big of a deal? You see, a deist thinks that God created and he acted and he, he just stepped away. But a theist, one who understands that no, God created And he interacts with and he is close by and he is purposefully, intentionally moving in that which he has created. That's something distinctly different. And to think that my vocation as a believer when I was born again at the age of 17, what I then reflected back on on what my dad had lived in front of my eyes was normal, was not abnormal, was normal. That the gospel comes in and it disrupts our lives and changes our trajectory. It not only changes my position of going from dead to alive, it changes my purpose. It gives me a whole new reason to get up on a Monday morning. In the book of Acts, I just want to lay some foundations here before we dive into 1 Corinthians. We find the apostle Paul. Before he's Paul, he's Saul. 
Saul is an interesting guy. We know that the, the first church in Jerusalem was dispersed through persecution. God uses persecution to spread the believers out and they go out and begin to plant churches. One of the first places they go to is into Antioch. This is something very new for the church. They, of course, they had not seen church planting. They had not been involved in church planting. So they, the apostles were like, is this really what's supposed to? Is this really real? And so the church in Antioch springs up because the men and women that were persecuted understood that the gospel disrupted their life in such a way that it was not connected to a location. That as they moved out and, and they found refuge in different places, they were the gospel incarnate, living out every moment of their lives into every space that they went out into the world. And as they traveled into Antioch, the, the chicken and the egg question, what comes first, right? The chicken or the egg? Well, what comes first, the gospel or a church? The gospel. The gospel produces the church. And these men and women went out and started this church in Antioch and the apostles said, we need to send somebody to figure out, is this really a church? Is this really what's going on here? And so they sent Barnabas. And in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas goes out to affirm this church in, in Antioch. And he goes, you can see it there, we won't dive into this, I just want to track with you a little bit to set the stage. He goes and he sees and he affirms and he tells the apostles, no, this is a real church. This is a real church. But they need help. They need help. They need, to be, they need to be led, guided, taught. They need to grow in their sanctification so they can understand their purpose. So he says, in chapter 11, he says, I know the, the guy I need to go get. So he goes and tracks down a guy named Saul. And he brings Saul to this church, this fledgling church. Now Saul had been this terrible Pharisee. Saul had persecuted the church, and we know his story. He had been transformed by the power of the gospel and set on a trajectory he could have never imagined. And as he was waiting for God to, to indicate the next steps, Barnabas comes and says, hey man, come and help me teach this little church. And so he takes on this new assignment and he goes to this church and begins to teach in Antioch. And we know the story that in verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. So now Saul's a teacher. He went from being a Pharisee, the gospel transforms him, he becomes a teacher. It doesn't stop there. God then moves in, in chapter 13 of Acts. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius, of Serene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord, verse 2, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So now the assignment changes. God steps in and says, man, the gospel does this, it disrupts. It's now it's time to go off and be a church planter. Be involved in spreading the gospel. So he goes from now teacher in the church, leader in the church, to now being sent out by the church. Acts chapter 13 also indicates that his name changes. It goes from Saul to Paul. It goes to Paul because he now is going to be the, the missionary to the Gentiles. And so he's no longer Saul, Jewish name. He now becomes Paul. Like Things are moving and changing. His assignment, his name, his, his identity 
things are moving. We pick him up again in Acts chapter 18. He's now on his missionary journey. He's on his second missionary journey. In Acts chapter 18, we find him initiating the gospel witness to start a church in the city of Corinth. He starts this church and he pours himself out. We know that in this movement we have uh, a, a very special couple that comes to, to knowledge of the gospel. We have Aquila and Priscilla that are born again. Paul teaches and trains and pours his life out to them. Part of the product of that is he takes his Aquila and Priscilla and he moves them. There's a whole other sermon in there. And he moves them to another country. But he, he leaves the church. He trains up Aquila and Priscilla and something interesting happens at the end of chapter 18. Aquila and Priscilla, now church planters in Ephesus, starting and helping to start a church in their home, they come across a man named Apollos. Apollos comes through and he's very different than Paul. He's a, a preacher. But if you were to put Paul and Apollos next to each other in front of Mercy Hill and you were to say, hey, which do you want to stand up in front of you every Sunday? You definitely would have probably picked Apollos. He probably looked nicer. He dressed nicer. He probably spoke much better than Paul. Paul's like, his clothes are ripped. He's a little bit abused from his travels. He's maybe a little hunched over. But his message is not right. And so Aquila and Priscilla sit down with, with this man and they reaffirm the gospel message and Apollos believes and he's transformed again. He had partial gospel, but not full gospel. And so the story starts between two men, Paul and Apollos. Paul and Apollos. For every purpose in today's world, these guys would be within the church of, of God on this planet competing. It would be a relationship that you would say should create envy. But it didn't. It didn't. Go with me to 1 Corinthians. So Paul, five to seven years after he had started the church in Corinth, he gets news that the church that he loves, you can imagine, I've been involved in church planting. Your, your soul gets intertwined with people that you dive deep with. Their pain, their suffering, your pain, your suffering... There's something about that that you never, you never can disconnect from. I've been, we've been involved, our family, I think in something like five or six church plants. If I go back to every one of those, my heart just aches. If I get news that things are not going well, your heart just aches. And so Paul gets news that something's happened in this church plant. Something has gone wrong. And so he hears of the division in the church. He hears that things are beginning to, to divide up amongst leaders. Now, Corinth was a multicultural city. It had lots of money. It had lots of movement. They were, spoke multiple languages. There was white collar and blue collar. There were a ton of reasons for people to be distinctly different from each other and separate. In the natural tendencies of our flesh, we gravitate towards those who look like us, who speak like us, who like the same food as us. That's normal. But one thing that the gospel does in disrupting our lives is places us in a position that we now stand alongside of people 
that don't think like us, that don't act like us, that don't eat the same food, food as us, they don't have the same cultural context in their home as us, and the gospel unites us and brings us together as one. And the credibility of the, of the message of the gospel is increased when we stand together in our diversity, but in our oneness. And this church wasn't doing that. So Paul, in the first couple chapters of, 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 of 1 Corinthians, he begins to lay out and take them back to the gospel and say, hey, you do not understand the power of the gospel. This is one of the greatest passages we find that we have an explanation of the true power of God in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, incredible ESV does a great job, being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God is the gospel. It is the most powerful thing that you and I have ever seen, ever touched, ever felt. There is nothing, not the sun, not the universe, nothing. It is the power of God. And this gospel brings us back to a place that changes who we are, our position and transforms our purpose, answering the existential question that you might be struggling with in your home. If you have teenagers graduating from high school, you might be 40 years old and you're just kind of wondering, what does my life mean? And you ask the question, what am I supposed to do? I have two teenagers graduating from high school this year, twins, and it's been a year of torture. Every time at the dinner table, we are wrestling with what am I supposed to do with my life? And I've done my best to take them back and say, the most important thing you can do with your life is not your occupation. It is your vocation. The call of God on your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. One who has been impacted and saved, born again, given new life in the gospel, you have been given a new purpose. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul lays it out, lays it out clearly. And he talks about the implications of the gospel in giving us this call. As you sit here and you are born again, you have believed in the power of the cross. That means that God, he's up close. God is at work. He is developing you. He is working in you. This church was divided, so let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh and behave, you are not of the flesh and behaving only in human way. For one who says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive the wages according to his labor. There are implications of the gospel that override your dreams, your aspirations, 
overrides your plans, disrupts your world. The power of Mercy Hill is not obviously in the location. The power of Mercy Hill is not in the power of the number. The power of Mercy Hill is found in each person that has been born again, transformed, and mobilized in the gospel. Lives that create a gospel witness all over this county. It's not based on the front door of a, of a theater that you can't even call yours. Because you have 200 front doors. You have 200 locations. That's the power. And Paul begins to lay out the implications of the gospel and says in verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? But servants. That word servant is a very simple word. And we would blow over it normally in any text. We would just think it's, yeah, servants. But what that, implica- what that means to each one of us in the gospel is something very deep and profound. You have launched your life. You have set your course. You have sought to fulfill yourself. But the gospel teaches us that in the moment that we are born again, As the song goes, we surrender all. In that moment, I am to turn the leadership of my life over and recognize as Proverbs 16, 9 says, I can make my plans. I can set my course. But now as I submit to the creator of all things and the one who loves me more than I can ever love myself, he will determine my steps. And in determining my steps in that, in that surrender of the leadership over my life, I can find the greatest amount of peace and hope. One of the things that we were involved in for years in, in, in Latin America is taking somebody who is a first generation believer and helping to, to chart a course that they would begin to see the power of God work out in their lives in a way that would distinctly transform them in a society, in a culture where they had to pay a price. I didn't sit with people and say, hey, the gospel will add on to your life. The gospel will bring you greater happiness. The gospel will provide you greater fortune. There are churches that were doing that. But the reality was that when they were born again, when they came to an understanding of the cross, their problems increased. Their difficulties did not go away. Many times they lost family members. They felt alone. The gospel did not solve those problems. Our neighbor, for example, began to meet with him. He understood the gospel, was born again. He was a civil engineer, worked his whole life to to build a home, to attain a certain level in Ecuador where he could not only thrive and provide for his family, but get things that they would enjoy. And one day in the car with him, we drove and he had reached the pinnacle. He was the vice minister over that portion of Ecuador, directly responsible to the president. And we began to train men in the church. We needed elders. But we had talked that previous week that said, men, you cannot 
continue to do the jobs you are doing and be elders in the church. You don't have time. Some of you are going to have to change your jobs. You're going to have to understand that your occupation needs to accommodate your vocation. And I can remember, like it was yesterday, driving and having that conversation with Cesar. And him wrestling with this idea of, I had reached the pinnacle. I'm, I'm vice minister over public works. I'm respected and known. I have, I've sat in the room with the president of the country. And now I'm confronted with this idea that I might need to give that up to accommodate the church, the kingdom message in the city of Cuenca, Ecuador. You see, when we get to that point where we realize that when Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever who loses his life for my sake will find it. That paradox in application in real life and every day when I understand that I'm a servant. I'm a servant to the Most High. And what he requires in this moment is that I release the leadership of my life, not only over the areas that I am willing, but to release it all. And in releasing all of my dreams, my aspirations, and my plans, I move myself into a space that gives control to his leadership in assigning me where I should be, what I should do. Paul says here in verse 5 again, What then is Apollos, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. And here it is, as the Lord assigned to each. Apollos had an amazing job, one that Paul could have diminished greatly because Paul was the guy who went in and was used of God to bring communities together. He preached the gospel and launched churches. Apollos would come behind him and he would teach and he would strengthen. Paul could have looked at that and been jealous of that. Could have diminished. The the message of of Apollos could could have put himself before the people and said, remember who I am. I'm the guy that helped you. The one that shared the gospel with you. Apollos just came afterwards. He didn't do half of what I've done. Paul levels the playing field and says, we're both servants under the leadership of the same God and he chooses to assign the jobs, the place, the ministry to us. We do not. That's huge. As I sat in that rider truck and we moved to northeastern Pennsylvania, I can remember again to this day the dread that I felt thinking my dad was making a terrible decision. I didn't understand that his assignment had changed and that he was okay with that. Even though it meant sacrifice, even though it meant difficulty, even though it meant leaving family, leaving the place that I had spent the majority of my life, God reassigned us. And in that moment, in that calling, he released himself to that. Paul says here that God desires to work through each one of us in a very specific and special way. He desires to use us in ways we can't imagine. But we hold that back 
by thinking we can lead ourselves better than he can lead us. We can choose for ourselves better than he can choose for us. And we are afraid to release that. My family and I have lived in three different countries. We've lived in, I think, 25 different homes. I've broken every rule to destroy your family. Moved my kids when they were teenagers multiple times. And the only comfort that I go back to is that he who holds me holds them. The assignments that he gives, no matter what they are, are empowered by him. He will care for me. He will care for them. He will care for you. We are called to greatness in the kingdom. And sometimes that greatness feels like we're losing control. Sometimes that feels like we are being diminished in, in who we are. But in those moments, Paul reminds us, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. I find the greatest amount of peace and joy in the fact that when he assigns me and he has equipped me and he unleashes me, I can rest in the fact that he has not placed a pressure on me to produce for him, to accomplish for him. But he says to me, I will do that through you in the way that I choose to. Paul rested in the fact that it was God, not Paul, not Apollos, that would produce what needed to be produced. That pressure can be taken off of my shoulders. In central Ecuador, there's a, a tribe of people called the Quichuas. Now they're called Quichuas because, and we could talk about this for a long time, but they were unified by the Incas. The Quichuas live in a province, these Quichuas live in a province of Chimborazo. Most of the inhabitants live up at about 11,000 feet. The city we lived in for many years was about 8,500 feet. There were two women, the turn of the century, 1890s, who were called and tasked to take the gospel to the Quichuas. Two women, young women, in their 20s. I don't know what people were thinking, but they sent these two women by themselves from the coast of Ecuador up to live at 11,000 feet to take the gospel to a people that these women didn't even speak their language. They went up there by themselves, learned Quechua, began to live in what they call chosas, which is a mud round home. It's terrible, cold, super cold, super rainy. By themselves, within two years, one of them dies. She gets sick and passes away. The other one decides to stay. I don't understand that. She decides to stay and she spends her whole life learning the language, translating some of the scriptures, and preaching the gospel in any way she could and never sees one person 
come to Christ. You would measure that and say, what a life that has not been lived well. God, why would you take a woman up there and use her that way and not produce any fruit? But in the eternal perspective, years after she would pull back and return to the United States, a revival broke out. It took off like wildfire. We don't understand. Sometimes when the assignment comes and the change is asked of us to move, to go, to be in a place we did not think about before, to move into a space, to, to accommodate the calling by changing our, our occupation or modifying our lifestyle or whatever it may be that God is asking us, we might not understand it completely. And in the years to come, it might not make sense. It might not produce a fruit that you can tangibly say, oh, this makes sense to me. I understand now why you did this, God. And Paul says, no, it doesn't matter. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. God will, God will take care of that, and he will take care of us. I don't know where you're at this morning. I do know if you have been impacted by the message of the gospel and you have believed in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the power to save. I know that you and I share a similar call to become transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That our lives would reflect the power of the gospel. We share that. But there's also a specific vocation, a call on your life, is different than mine. That call might be to stay here. It might be to go. But I can tell you that it is there. And God is seeking to speak into your life, to lean into your life, and to move you into a place that the power of the church is evident in your home, in your life. As I look back at my, my dad, my dad now, he'll be 80, I think he'll be 85 in a couple weeks. And I mapped the course of my, my life with him and observing him. I'm amazed at the power of the gospel to not only give new life, but to change your purpose. And to be able to say, I've seen it with my eyes. I've experienced it with my life. And when I sit down with my kids and I talk to them about the power of God, he is living, he is acting today. I can go back and look at the monuments that we've built up, that my dad built up, that women in the middle of Ecuador have built up. And we can, without doubt, say he lives. He lives. I would invite you this morning I would invite you this morning, first and foremost, for those of you who have never believed in the gospel, to today ask somebody to explain that to you. For those of you who have been born again, I want you to reflect deeply, ask different questions this morning, starting with, God, what is it you want from me? 
and for you to physically turn your hands open to him and say my life is before you with hands open and lifted up please please God live through me so that others might see that they might understand that there is hope in you amen let me pray Father, we humbly come before you this morning and we recognize, Lord, that we are limited in our understanding. We are limited with the lives that we have to grasp truly what you desire to accomplish in us and then through us. Our brains can't wrap around all that you see and understand, even in our hearts and our minds. God, we humbly come before you and we submit before your leadership. And we pray, dear God, that your will be done. That as you call us to be transformed into the image of your son, that we would also come before you and submit that you call us to also say what he said. Not my will, but your will be done. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.